call your or like to call your attention rather to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16 this morning. If you'd open there and we come back to this 16th chapter and I'd like for us to look at this very important key passage of scripture and we're going to spend all of our time with this today and it's so important that when we come back next week we're also going to look again in these scriptures. And this is the place in the New Testament where we find the first mention of the word church In fact, in all of the gospel accounts, we find the word church only one other time, and that is also in the gospel of Matthew. And verse number 18 that we find here in the 16th chapter is the definitive verse on the beginning of the church, because here Jesus explains how the church is built on him, and how he says that there will be opposition to the church that will try to stop it. And then he also gives us a little bit of a word about the work of the church. And in the rest of the New Testament, now we only see the word church once in the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or twice rather, both in the time of the book of Matthew. But in the rest of the New Testament, it actually comes the predominant focus of everything that goes on. Now I'd like for us then to look at Matthew 16 and I'd like you to stand with me please once again as we read scripture and I want you to look at the 13th verse. I want to go back to this place, the same that we began with last week, Matthew 16:13, where it says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say, Thou art John the Baptist. Some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Father, we thank you for your word today and We just pray that you'd open up eyes of understanding as we look into this text that we might really see what you'd have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Our subject this morning is the Church of Christ, and I I want to spend my time with these words that Jesus said in that 18th verse, I will build my church. Now, we've already been through one sermon on these verses, and I want to give you the major topic that we talked about last week, and that'll sort of catch us up just a little bit. We had an entire sermon on this the last time, so I don't have time to go into detail, but let's just take a look at this very first point that we had in your outline from last week, and that is the placement of the church's foundation. Jesus said to Peter, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, There are many places of argument that you'll find in Scripture, but I suppose that there is no place that is 
as hotly debated as these words are, what did Jesus mean when he said, and he was speaking to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church? Well, there is one church, as we learned last week, that insists that Peter is the rock, that the rock upon which Jesus built his church was upon Peter, and they maintain that Peter was given primacy, that he became the first pope of the church, that all other popes are in a line of apostolic succession from him. And so that actually makes the pope, who is the head of the church, and on matters of church doctrine, he speaks infallibly, even as if Christ was here himself. We maintain that that is a false idea of the church, and this group that claims this has grown up into uh, what I would refer to as a religious monstrosity that approves all different types of traditions and doctrines that are not actually found in the Word of God. And you might expect this, that if Jesus had decided to build his church on the wrong type of foundation... If that foundation is not the strong foundation that it needs to be, then you can imagine that the structure that's built upon top of that would not be the right kind as well. And so Jesus said that he was going to build his church, and actually he had nothing at all to do with the idea that Peter would be the foundation of the church, nor does he have anything to do with this corrupt religious system that claims that he is. Jesus promised to build it, and a prominent feature of the uh, New Testament church must be that it's very clear to us what he meant when he said that he would build the church. What is that foundation on which he builds? Well, again, the only way that a church can be right, the only way we can have a true church, if it it must be built upon the right kind of foundation, a perfect foundation. And we looked at the life of Peter, and we saw that Peter was not perfect. In fact, we can find multiple instances in Scripture where Peter showed that he was not infallible. And we even look in this chapter, just a little bit beyond where we're reading today, in verses 22 and 23, and you can see there that Satan actually used Peter as a mouthpiece. And Peter protested when Jesus should go to the cross to die for our sins. And so he actually rebuked Jesus in that activity. And so Jesus turned to him and said, "'Get thee behind me, Satan.'" And that shows, again, that Peter was an imperfect, fallible man, and certainly he was not strong enough for the Lord to build his church on. So who or what, then, is that perfect foundation? Well, we believe that the answer is Jesus Christ himself, that Jesus built the church upon him, that he is the solid rock, he is the eternal, unchangeable, unshakable, massive rock, he is the strong foundation, the one that's strong enough to uphold all of the truth of God's word. That's what we talked about last week, and so I want to move on from that to another part today, which I hope will be a a blessing to you as we talk about God's plan for the church that Jesus does have a plan for his church. And my intention is to take you back just to the simplicity of that statement when Jesus said, I will build my church. And what did he mean by that? Well, I think that we would have to note, first of all, that the disciples had no idea what a church was. Now, if you ask people today, what is the church? You'll get a lot of wrong answers. Uh, Many people don't know the answer to that either. But when Jesus asked this thing to the disciples, or he made this statement about the church that he would build, the disciples had no background to draw from. 
They'd never seen a church. They had no idea what he was talking about as far as this thing that he would build, that they'd never, they'd never seen a church building, certainly. They'd never heard of pastors and deacons. The work of the church had not been outlined. And certainly they knew nothing at all about all the schemes and gimmicks that are put into place today in order to increase our attendance at church. When Jesus said, I will build my church, the disciples were not thinking, well, finally, Jesus, you're going to build a church? Then what we need to do is we need to get our rock band together, and we need to get us a stage and get up on that, and we need to have 40 days of purpose, and we'll help you to build your church. Jesus didn't need any help. He said, I will build my church. And he'll do it without all of the man-made ideas that we have, all of the man-made schemes that are put into place. Jesus knows how to build his church, and the best thing for us to do is to just move out of the way and let him build the church in the way that he intended to build it. Now, what we are to do is to follow his instructions. And his instructions are found in his word, and so we do things his way. So the disciples heard this word church... And it had none of the connotations that we put on the word today. Now, the word that we see in our Bibles translated as church is the Greek word ekklesia. It's the same word from which we get ecclesiastical. It's actually a compound word that's made out of two words being put together. Kaleo is the root word, which means to call out. And then it's combined with ek, means to call out or a called out assembly. So we're not just talking about people who have just been in generally called out, but those who have been called out for the purpose of assembling together. We find the word translated that way in Acts chapter 19, verses 32 and 39 and 41, where this Greek word, ekklesia, instead of being translated as church in those places, is literally translated assembly. For example, in Acts 19, verse 41, after the town clerk in Ephesus addressed the crowd, the scripture says, and when he had spoken, he dismissed the assembly. And there, that is the very same word. Assembly is the word ecclesia. And as you listen to me, you may say, well, why is that so important? Why are you making a point of this? Well, it's important because it tells us that the church is not some mystical, invisible body. That when Jesus said that he would build his church, he meant that he would call out a special people for his name, that these would be visible people, that these are people that can meet together and they can come together into a place such as we have today and together meet as God's church. Now you hear all the time talk about the church, but we don't have a church until the church is assembled. Now, you may be a member of a church, and you may be a member of your church even when you're at home, but you are not God's church until you are assembled in the place where God has you to come together. Now, the disciples would not have understood that word in any other way. That Jesus said, I'm going to call out a congregation of people, I'm going to call my special people, those that have been saved by my grace, And these people are going to carry out my work in the world after I've been crucified and risen from the dead. And so this church, this assembly, this congregation of people is built upon Jesus Christ, who is that solid foundation. And why is it so important for you to be a part of the Lord's church? Well, it's because it's the only true assembly that God has called out of this world to do the work of God. 
We don't have any other means in the New Testament of doing God's work. Now, the rest of the New Testament is the development of the church and its doctrines, of its structure, and of all those means that God has given us to carry out his work in the world. Now, as we look at this part of our study, this really ought to be a multiple-part series. And I don't have time to go into all the different facets of the church. But if you come at other times, you'll be able to hear those things because in every service that we have at Brian Baptist Church, somewhere, somehow, we're going to be talking about Christians and about how God's people work through his church. I can't do it now because we have this pressing need to get on through the book of Matthew, and you all know I take long enough anyway. So in the time that we have, we'll just take a brief look at three major areas of Christ's plan for the church. Why did Jesus Christ want to build a church? The first one, I think, is the easiest one for us because this is actually the ultimate reason behind everything that he does. Why do we have a church? We sang it about a minute ago. We have a church for the glory of Jesus Christ. Every person that is saved is saved for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, I really like to emphasize that in my preaching because there are a lot of people that are confused about this. I see it on a weekly basis. Sometimes we have visitors come to our church and At times, I'm able to interview some of our visitors, and I hear some strange statements that are made sometimes, and I'm not indicting anybody in the congregation today. But sometimes I hear strange statements that are made by people. A few years ago, there was a couple that wanted to become members of our church, and so I brought them into the office, and I sat down with them, and I just asked them, do you have any questions that you need to ask me about the church? And I suppose that I wasn't quite clear about that. My intention was to say, do you have any intentions about what we believe? Do you have any uh, understanding or any questions, I should say? Do you have any questions about what we believe? Or, or, Or do you need to know, do you need me to tell you how you can actually be a part of working in the ministry of Berean Baptist Church? Now, these are people that are interested in becoming members. And instead of asking those kinds of questions... This is the thing that was on the husband's mind. He asked me, well, do you have a softball team? And that was the most important thing to him in in church was that the church would have a softball team, the place to play ball because he liked to play softball. And I've spoken to others that have come into church and they're looking for a program. They want to know what is your program for kids. They have uh, want to know about a program for an addiction maybe a particular program for some social ill or whatever it might be, and they believe that the actual purpose of the church is to do this, is to meet people's felt needs, that this is why we have a church. And so they evaluate the church based upon all the peripherals that go on. And so they come to church not asking, what can I help to do to glorify Jesus Christ in this place and worshiping with this congregation But rather they have the attitude, what is it that I can get from the church? What is it that the church will give me if I become a member here? Not can I serve Jesus Christ and glorify him. Well, you need to really understand that the primary function of the Lord's church is to give him glory. And the primary function of your life is to give glory to Jesus Christ. 
We're confused about that sometimes. People say, well, I'm saved to get out of hell. Well, you will be saved out of hell if you believe in Jesus Christ. Some people say, I'm saved because I need to be happy. And we can all attest as Christians that the Lord puts a new joy into our hearts and we do become happy. But our primary purpose is not being saved from hell. And God does not save us to be happy. It's not primarily about us at all. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so you are saved so that you can be brought into conformity with God's will for your life. Now you might say, well, I don't want that as the focus of my life. I'm not interested in that. I I need something out of the church myself. And then I would have to ask the question, then if that is the main thing that you're looking for, I would have to ask, are you really saved? And when you were saved, did you not fall at the cross of Jesus Christ at the foot of it? And weren't you struck to the ground as the Apostle Paul was when he said, Lord, what will you have me to do? Not substituting what we want to do as the work of the church, but our focus becomes him. What does he want me to do? The focus of all of it is to glorify Jesus Christ. And so I want to remind you of that. And I want to keep on reminding you of that. Well, Brian mentioned that I had been pastor of the church now this year, 10 years. That comes up next month. 10 years as pastor of Berean Baptist Church. And I remember when I first became pastor here that I'd been preaching for just a little bit, a little while. And I heard, had, had people come to me and I, I had been preaching on these things like giving God the glory for your life and how that you are saved for this purpose. And I actually had people that are members of the church that came to me and said, I have never heard it said that way before. I never realized it like that before. And the only thing that I can say is shame on preachers that haven't preached this, that our lives are to give glory to Jesus Christ. We don't want to put our emphasis in the wrong place. And so when you come to Berean, if you're not interested in glorifying Christ, then you're in the wrong place. Because this is what we're here for. Our lives are given to him. So all of our encouragement, all of our teaching, all of our activity is for the purpose of worshiping Christ. We are a called out people to glorify him. Jesus said, I will build my church because his church is the place where his name is proclaimed and where he receives all of the glory. Now that leads me into a second reason that Jesus gave us the church. We have a church for the gospel of Christ, for the gospel. The gospel is the good news of salvation. If the purpose of creation is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, then it is God's purpose to bring all people into conformity with their purpose. Now here's the thing about this. There is no one who comes into the world, no one born into the world and then begins to grow and grows up. And then at some point in their life, they say, what I really need to do is I need to get on with the main purpose of my life. And so what I'll do is I'll seek out God. I'll look for God. I'll look for Jesus Christ and I'll find him. And when I find him, I will glorify him. Nobody thinks like that. Nobody comes into the world seeking God. In the book of Romans, it tells us there is none that understands, there is none that seeks after God. We won't do it. We don't want to do it. 
Now that brings up an interesting question, I would think. And that is, if we were created for this purpose, if this is why God has put us in this world in order to glorify his son, Jesus Christ, then how is it that we have missed this critical point of understanding? Why isn't it that when every person comes to an age where they begin to understand who they are and who God is, that they say, I need Jesus Christ? And we wouldn't have to worry about preaching the gospel to anyone because people would realize that there is a purpose for my life and what I need is I really do need to come to Christ and worship him. But we don't see that. If you've been a church, in church for very long, you know we have to work very hard to get people to understand that and to come into conformity with that purpose. We have to work really hard even to get people to sit in a church to listen to what's being said. They don't want it. They don't care about it. And so we wonder, how is it like that? Why is it like that? When God has created all of us to give glory to him, why is it like this? Well, we go all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And Adam believed the lie of Satan. And Satan said to him, Adam, it is all about you. It's all about you. Why are you listening to God? Don't don't you know that if you eat of this tree that you will be like God? He said, Adam, actually, you can become God if you eat of this tree. If you just follow my directions and do what I tell you, I promise you, you can become God. And that attraction was just too strong for Adam. And so he thought, be God? Well, that's exactly what I want. And there is the root of all the ego and all of the selfishness that's found in the world today. If you ask honestly... Is there more than one God? Do you know the answer to that question? There are actually as many gods as there are people in the world. And that's because every person has made himself his own God. In the human race, people think they are God. And this is because all of us are born with Adam's myopic view of self. We have a very vivid picture of that in the, in the Bible, in the book of Judges. There it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And don't you hear the same thing that goes on everywhere today? You hear the statement, to thine own self be true. And in this postmodern world, the mantra of this world is, what is true for you may not be true for me. Because I have the right to make up my own truth. I do what I think is right. I will do what I believe is right in my own eyes. And so if you wonder why is it that we have millions of babies that are aborted in the womb every year. It's because we have decided what's to do. What we want to do is right in our own eyes. All of the vice, all of the corruption, all that we find in the world is because we want to do what is right in our own eyes. So we've established our own standard, our own standard of what's right and wrong, and we have dismissed God's standard altogether. And that's why people do not listen to what God says in the Bible. So what happens because of that? Well, we have a world full of people that have not reached the purpose for which they were created. They don't fulfill the purpose that God created them for. And so what happens when the creation is not what God intended it for? It becomes useless. 
It's no good to God. It's no good if we don't reach that purpose for which God has intended us. And so, in creation, a creation that doesn't meet the purpose is meant to be destroyed. It's like a, it's like a cup with a hole in it. It can't hold any water. So, if you can't use a cup for its intended purpose, what do you do with it? You throw it away. You get rid of it. So, when you look at God, what does he do when he has a creation that's not being used for its intended purpose? And this is the way that all of us were born. If I could put it to you this way, we've all been born like a cup with a hole in it. We can't reach the purpose for which God intended us. And so, just like we don't keep a cup with a hole in it, neither does God. Now, this is what the gospel is really all about. Because the gospel is what God uses to bring you, to fix you, to make you into something that he can use. The gospel is actually God's recreation. Through the gospel, we are born again. We are recreated in a way that we can be used by God. And so we're, when we're born again, we're able to see God in the right way. We see ourselves in the right way. We're able to come into God's kingdom and then we're able to fulfill God's purpose for our lives. Well, how does that relate to the church? Well, I can best state it in the way that Jesus did when he was speaking to the church and we have this in several places, but it's very clear when Jesus said this at his ascension in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but ye shall receive power... After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. Jesus said, you shall be witnesses of me. Witnesses of what? Paul gave us the answer in Romans chapter 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And the gospel is that work that Jesus Christ did when he went to the cross and he died for our sins, then he was taken down from the cross, put into the tomb, and then he arose from the grave. And the Bible says that he arose for our justification. And so the gospel is how we actually learn to fulfill our purpose in life. We come to Jesus Christ in the gospel. And then we're transformed into creation, a creation that can glorify him. Folks, that is really the work of the church. No one else has been given the gospel. Now we see it here in Matthew as Jesus was teaching his disciples over and over again. He's always expounding his gospel in order to bring those disciples to the place that they can go out on their own and begin to tell others about this saving message of Jesus Christ. It was his intention that they would go to all the world and reach the world with the gospel. So the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And that's just another way of saying that the gospel actually has the power to convert lost sinners from those who cannot fulfill their purpose for those to, of those that have no meaning in their life that God cannot use. The gospel transforms people into vessels that God can use for his purpose. And the church is the only place that has been entrusted with that life-giving gospel. And so what do we do? We just keep preaching the gospel. 
We do it week after week after week because we don't want to see people cast aside on the garbage heap of hell. And so we preach that people can be transformed into creatures that reach the chief end of man, and that is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now that brings me to our third reason that there is a church. We also have a church for the gathering to Christ. And this is the church as it exists as a living, breathing organism that is actually called Christ's body. Now, now would you notice this key phrase again? Jesus said, I will build my church. And that's the intimate relationship that Jesus has with his people, that he wanted to call out a people for his name, a people that are peculiarly his. And so he said, my church. And in those words, he establishes the intimacy that he has with this very special group of people. And I would have to say to you that you can't have that kind of intimacy unless you are a part of God's church. See, it's not for everybody. It's not for those who have decided that they want to be freelance Christians and just go where they want, do what they want, have their own way. And you know why? Because the church is so intimate with Jesus Christ that he refers to it as his own body. I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. In this place, the Apostle Paul is using the analogy of marriage, and he compares the husband to Christ and to the church as the espoused or the engaged bride to Christ, and this bride will become his wife. Now, there's a whole lot in this passage of Scripture that I don't have time to go into, but I want you to look at verse number 29. And take some time later to read the rest of this passage. But the marriage relationship is what's being explored here. And the scripture says that husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loves the church and gave himself for it. And then Paul says that wives are to submit themselves to their husbands. And that is emblematic of the church submitting itself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's a A lot of powerful teaching there, and a lot of people don't like it, don't like what's said, but this is what Paul talks about. But we look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29, where Paul says, "No, No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, and of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now we see that the church is compared to a body, and that body is the body of Christ. And and what does Paul say about our bodies? Well, he says no one hates his own body. What you do is you try and take care of your body as the best you can. You put your body above everything else. And then what does he say about marriage? Well, He takes us back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he makes this statement, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now, what did God do for Adam? He made a wife for him. And Adam said, and maybe when you got married, you might have heard these words in a, not a funeral message, but a wedding message. But you might have heard these words in a wedding message where Adam said, this is now, looking at Eve, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Bone of my bone 
and flesh of my flesh. Now, what the scriptures are telling us there, that when a husband and wife get married, they become one body. So that the husband treats his wife as his own body. He loves her. He cherishes her. He nourishes her. And Paul applied that analogy to the church. He says that the church is intimate with Jesus Christ. And why is that? Because it's a part of his body. And I don't mean a part in a metaphysical, ethereal way, but I mean that when we come into union with Christ, that all the love that Christ has, he bestows upon us, that all of the, of the love that he has for the members of this body is a special love, and you simply cannot get closer to Jesus Christ than to be in his church. Christ made the church his bride. Now, the highest expression that we have of love that's known to the human race is the love between a husband and his wife, a man and his wife. And any upsetting of that bond, any intrusion into that bond by anyone else is considered to be out of place. That it's wholly upsetting. That God says you can't do it. It's unnatural. It is defiling. And so God excludes anyone coming in and breaking a marriage bond between a husband and his wife. And yet, when it comes to the church, you have people that say, well, I don't want to be a part of the church, but what I really want to do is I want to squeeze myself in, and I want to put myself into a place where I have no right to belong. I want all of the blessings that we can get from the church without having all the responsibilities that I don't want to commit myself to the Lord's church. I want to come and go as I please, so don't try to make me commit to the Lord's church. And you know what God says to that? He says, you have no rights. You have no rights to worm your way into this intimate relationship. You have no right to come into my home and ask for the benefits that belong to my wife and to compete, compete for my affections. Now, husbands, try this at home. Well, better still, just listen to the illustration. Don't try it at home. But you come home one day. Do you, do you think that your wife is going to let you bring the secretary home with you? Do you think that she's going to let you put her on the deed to the house and put her in your will? Will, will she let you invite the secretary to come home and sit at your table for dinner and then go to your bed at night? You're going to be one dead husband if you try that, I promise you. But you know that a person who does this in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ is saying the same thing. I want all the blessings of Christ. I want everything that belongs to his bride. I want everything that belongs to this relationship that he has. I want that for myself. It's just like asking to worm in, to squeeze in to someone else's relationship. And God says, I'm not willing to do it. See, the church is precious to him. The church has a very special place in his heart. It's above all others. And he gathers his church to him, and he holds us, and he kisses us, and he cherishes us. We are his body. Jesus said, I will build my church. And there is so much love in that statement that you will never know how to reach the bottom of it. So yes, the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a wonderful creation. And we could say that the kingdom of God is a wonderful creation. But the church is actually where we come into the intimacy with God on a very special basis. Now, if you're a child of God, you are in the kingdom of God. 
but that doesn't necessarily make you in the church of God. And I might make this note. You say, well, how can that be? Well, the church and the kingdom are not the same thing. There was a popular Christian song that came out a few years ago that made all of the contemporary Christian charts. It was sung by a lot of different artists, and the song had a line in it that said, Upon this rock I will build my kingdom. That's not what the scripture says. Jesus did not say, Upon this rock I will build my kingdom. You don't build the kingdom. The kingdom is. The kingdom exists. The kingdom is God's domain from all time and includes all the people that have ever been believers in Jesus Christ. That's God's kingdom. But the church is a different thing. In this age that we're living in right now, the New Testament church is the place where God works. He takes us out of this world and places us into his church because he is the bodybuilder. This is what he does. He builds bodies. He builds his own body, the church. So what you need to do is to come into God's church because this is the place where God is glorified on the earth in the present time. This is the place where the gospel is preached. This is the only place that God has given a commission to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we come into the church as Christians in order to fulfill the purpose that God has for our lives because he says, this is where I receive the glory. Christ loves his bride and he loves her intimately. I will build my church. Now, I want to read this scripture again. I read it at the end of last week's message, and we'll finish again today with it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Peter says, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ, Wherefore also it is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is become the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed." But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And there in verse number 9, Peter just sums up everything that I've said to you today. Why are you chosen by God? You are chosen by him to be a peculiar people, to show forth the praises of Jesus Christ, to give honor and glory to him. Why does Christ have a church? It's to give him glory, to give his gospel, to gather his people in. These are all reasons why he's given us this blessed institution called the church. And the question is, for every believer, why would you not want to be a part of what Christ is building? Why don't you want to be a part of his body? Now, maybe today... You're on the outside looking in at all of this. Perhaps you are a Christian and you haven't become a member of a church anywhere. You haven't become a member of a Bible-believing church or you're one who just kind of goes around and really has no commitment to anyone. Well, the Bible says that we need to make commitments. We, we need to place ourselves in a good Bible-believing church. And this is what Jesus does. He invites us to become a part of his body. 
We're not standing here and saying to anybody, you can't be a part of Christ's body. We're going to keep you from it. And we're going to learn next week, as we look into the last part of the scripture that we read today, that people think like that. They, they say, well, Peter has the keys to the kingdom, and what he can do is shut people out of the body of Christ. And we have the power to do that. We don't have the power to do that. We stand here today not trying to exclude people from fellowship with Jesus Christ, but to teach them and bring them into this intimate fellowship that he asks. So you can be a part of Christ's bride. But I promise you this, you have to come his way. You can only come the way that he says to come. You must have full confidence in him. You must commit your life to him. You must believe that he's the only one who can save you from your sins. It's the only way that you can be a part of the bride, the lamb's wife. And that's trusting Jesus fully to save you from all of your sins. Scripture says Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And every one of us here ought to be so thankful that he did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close this message today, we just thank you for this church that you have given us. We thank you, Lord, that there are churches throughout our country that stand for the truth of your word, that are preaching the gospel of Christ. And Lord, we just pray that you would, your, your richest blessings would be upon all those that are teaching truth today. We think about our own congregation, and we're so happy to see people visit us. And we thank you for the time of Thanksgiving that we have today. But may the most important thing on our mind right now be this. Are we serving you as we should? Are we honoring your name? Do we glorify you? Do we complete the purpose for which we have been created? Lord, we pray that you'd speak to all of our hearts and help us to examine ourselves. Are we really doing what you require of us? And we just ask you, Lord, to talk to people today. Open their hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.